Who are the MVPs and Cy Youngs for the first half of the 2017 season? Who are the studs and duds for the second half? We'll convene a Baseball HQ Radio mid-season roundtable with Gene McCaffrey and Todd Zola next on this special Tuesday edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, July the 11th, show number 27 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and I'm excited to be part of this special Tuesday edition of the podcast. We'll be talking with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball and Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire about the big stories shaping baseball and fantasy baseball, the year-to-date MVPs and Cy Youngs and the busts of the season so far, and we'll have some studs and duds for the second half as well. Thanks for joining us for this Tuesday special edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It's our mid-season roundtable. Hey, what do you say? Real games start up again in just three days. We gotta talk some baseball. And let's throw out the first pitch by introducing our panelists on this Baseball HQ Radio Roundtable. First, it's the wise guy of fantasy baseball, Gene McCaffrey. Gene, welcome to the show. Hello, Patrick. Great to be here. And uh, Todd Zola in Las Vegas, Nevada. How you doing? Sorry if my voice is a little hoarse. I uh, I auctioneered a football draft yesterday. I had to yell over a bunch of drunken guys calling out names, so I didn't know who they were. Let's get started. Uh, of course, we we all know that the big stories of the year on the uh, player side have been Aaron Judge and Cody Bellinger whacking home runs at record paces. But, so let's start with a story of the year, maybe outside of those two guys, a little bit too much uh, obviousness. Uh, Gene, what's your big story as far as uh, the player performance uh, so far this year? Well, again, it's got to be the home runs for the hitters and the strikeouts for the pitchers to keep you know, soaring. Um, I guess the explanation that makes the most sense to me is that the, they've done something to the ball, which apparently is backed up by the data. Uh, last I saw, there was a 5% increase in home run distance across the board, which sort of uh, seems to me to be conclusive that it's the ball, and also the democratization of home runs also lends itself to that explanation. Um, so that's the story. I guess it's going to continue, too. Gene, you also uh, mentioned when we were talking about this earlier, Justin Smoke, Logan Morrison, Yonder Alonso, probably the biggest example, and Mike Moustakas, have all basically publicly said they've altered their swing planes. They've deliberately bought into this whole launch angle theory, and that seems to be making a difference as well. Was it always this easy? Why didn't they think of this before? I don't know, uh, but I think it's clearly true that these guys have done it. I mean, look at their fly ball rates, and they're you know hugely different from what they used to be. So, yes, they're clearly buying into it. Um, it may be, you know, back in the days when Babe Ruth um, started going crazy, uh, before that it was thought that if you tried to hit home runs, you just weren't going to be a good baseball player. And once Babe Ruth proved them wrong, they, um, they all started trying to hit home runs. And what he did was nearly duplicated by several players in the, in the, you know, in the next decade, and I think that's what's happening now. I think people were just... You know, it was sort of an old wives' tale, and they um, and they said, "Okay, well, we can do this without without sacrificing our uh, our hitting ability." So, I'm going to try to hit home runs. And in Justin Smoke's case, in fact, his batting average has gone up by uh, well, he's right around 300 at the break, a career sort of 240ish type of guy, and his on base percentage is around 360 or 365, which is again is a hundred points better than anything he's done before. Part of that, I think, is at least what Smoke has told the media up here in uh, the Toronto area is that he came to the realization that he just needed to relax more at the plate. He needed to be more discerning, but not be so hard on himself. These kind of mental approaches. Uh, do you? think there's a future in that as well yep i do um well first of all you have to feel comfortable doing it um so it's not going to work for everybody but it clearly has worked for these people and you know once you success begets success so uh, you know when he started doing it it's working i mean i don't think he's going to be quite as good going forward but you know he's proved to himself and to everybody else that yes he can do it after all this time i mean how many sleeper lists was he on in the past 10 years 
You know, he'd probably be on all of our sleeper lists at one time or another and did nothing. And all of a sudden, here he is. Makes you wonder if there's something we can do to figure out who the next uh, Smoke or Logan Morrison or Alonzo is going to be. Uh, Todd, what's your player story of the year? I don't know. It's rather tame. It's nothing. I, I just uh, got a. I appreciate what Jameson, Jameson Talion's done. That's all. I mean, we, there's not a whole lot of analysis going on. We all know the story. I just think in a day and age of um, where we where we applaud people that do th- you know that have a uh, do something wrong and then come back and and and, and make good and we kind of overlook these guys that are always doing things well. I think uh, I think Jameson Talion's a pretty good story out there. He is, and uh, actually doing a pretty good job for encouraging uh, other people yeah. his age, young men, to uh, take care of business and make sure you're uh, okay in that department. For those who might not be familiar, Tyon was diagnosed with testicular cancer, spent a little time off the field on the DL. He came back, and uh, Jameson Tyon's a good pitcher who has upside, and certainly if mental fortitude has anything to do with it, boy, you got to give Tyon full marks for that. Uh, when I think of what's going on with the players this year, to me, the really interesting story so far has been the growth of multi-position eligibility batters. And I think this is going to have some important ramifications over the next few years as we try to figure out what kind of added value uh, a player gets by being eligible at draft, especially to play more than one position. Uh, Todd, you're the valuation expert here. What do you think is a, I know there's some tweakage that we try to do just on our own after the fact to say, well, you know, this uh, Jose Ramirez or Marwin Gonzalez or these guys have an X dollar pure market value at the draft, but I'm going to bump him two or three bucks because of the multi-position eligibility. Do you think that there's a chance that we're going to see a more formal way to try to roll that multi-position eligibility into the valuation itself at the source? It's not so much the source gets more value in this year. You're talking about Jose Ramirez. His stats are, are what his stats are worth, regardless of position, unless he's, at least he's, unless he's a catcher. It's the fact that you can juggle your lineup to get the better players in at his other positions. So that's what adds the, that's what adds the, the extra points to your squad. So that's worth something. I don't know if you can actually come up with a number, though, because you know different teams, you're getting different players in, and if you have a utility, it may mean more to you. So I, I still, you know, as much as I love the numbers and trying to pinpoint it, to me, it's it's still somewhat of a guess as to how much more more uh, you know value you can add to your team. Whether I don't know that you can actually pinpoint it and say this twenty-four dollar player becomes a twenty-eight dollar player because what you're adding, I think, is different for a team. I think that's. Uh I think that's correct, and I would also like to say that it also probably depends on whether you have another such guy on your roster already. If you've already got Marwin Gonzalez, then maybe the added value of Jose Ramirez from his extra eligibility kind of declines a bit because it's a little bit of overkill, although the extra flexibility, given all the injuries that we're having, uh, certainly it's a a good thing. Uh, What do you think, Gene? Is there a way to figure out an actual value for this extra eligibility? What I've been doing is if they play one other position, I add a buck. If they play more than one other position, I add two or even three. Um, it's just something to be aware of, and especially in, in a draft situation, at the end of the draft in the reserve rounds, you want, you want to take guys who qualify, and especially if they qualify at second or short or third and first, because that gives you five lineup spots you can use them in, and that's, that's really valuable during the course of the season with these insane injuries. Yeah, I like to try to do a chain as well. See so if you get one guy that's you know second and third, another guy that's third and first, another guy that's first and outfield. Now you can you really you can you know you really can at this point you can put a player in any position. So one guy's nice, but do this chain. This year coming into the season, there were fewer of these guys that were worthwhile. Um, you know, obviously guys in season, Salarte, some guys like that gained the second eligibility. But for whatever reason, this year as compared to previous seasons, there seemed to be fewer quality. Multi-eligible multi guys coming in. Yeah, they, I think that was a fluke for this year, though. I think right. next year yeah. we're going to see there's going to be lots of guys like that, and people yeah. are going to yeah. have to be aware of it. I think people were aware of it this year, too. I mean, I, I know I, I talk about it with several people, you know, just adding a buck or two to uh, right. to these types of players. I did a check just before we started the call, and uh, so far this year, 169 different hitters, all of whom have 100 at-bats or more, 
currently exceed the five minimum game uh, at a position to qualify. So, the, and that's a lot bigger number than it was last year or the year before, and certainly way bigger than maybe ten years ago when it was relatively rare to have the Ben Zobris type. So, I think this is a trend. It's a response. Uh, we'll talk about in a few minutes. It's a response to the way that rosters are being constructed, where teams are adding so many more pitchers and have so many fewer hitters that they have to mm-hmm. have these multiple position guys for for their own purposes. And I wonder how long that's going to go on. Uh, let's move ahead. Uh, uh, Gene, a few minutes ago, mentioned the home run increase. It's certainly been the story of uh, Major League Baseball this year. Uh, what are the fantasy gaming effects directly? Uh, Todd, what do you think? Yeah, I like to, everybody likes to approach it from the angle of the hitter because the hitter's hitting the home runs. My problem is I, I can't figure out which pitchers are going to stop giving up homers, like Masahiro Tanaka seems to figure out the, 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 his problem, and which are going to keep giving up the homers. Guys like, like guy like Lance Lynn, is his strikeout and walk rate is fine. You know, we, we kind of give him a pass because he's coming off of Tommy John, but he's given up three times as many homers as he normally does. So from my point of view, you know, part of it's because something I do every week is rank pitchers for, for the starts, two starts, etc. I'm having trouble figuring out which pitchers are figuring it out or which pitchers are just... Sort of, I don't want to call it dumb luck because I think there's some bad pitching going on, but I think if these some of these hitters are increasing their, you know, especially on low pitches, doing the, the, the swing plane thing, I think there's some pitches that are just naturally more susceptible to this new approach. And, you know, they you know, maybe Tanaka was and he's figured out how to, he's actually changed his mix. He's actually throwing more curves and sliders. Maybe he's less concerned about his arm falling off than he was coming into the season. But that's my problem is I don't know what pitchers are going to, how to, how to, you know, the home run per nine, any formula that has home run per nine in it, I don't know that the formula is, any, is, is valid anymore. Well, what I think what we want to do is we want to go with the pitchers who have better control because if we can't predict the home runs, we can at least predict the value of them. You know, the solo right. home run is not going to hurt us as much as the, you know, the two or three run shot. Yep, no, exactly, I mean, yeah. Gene, before I go on with mine, I'd like to ask you a question about uh, high ball pitchers, and I wonder if they're getting some kind of advantage because so many hitters are now grooving their swings to try to golf that low pitch because for so many years uh, pitchers were being taught to throw low in the zone, the umpires were giving those strikes, all these kind of things were pushing the ball down in the zone, and the hitters like uh, Morrison and uh, and some of these guys, uh, Yonder Alonso with this elevated uh, uh, upward plane swing seem to be compensating for the low ball pitching by deliberately trying to drive low balls into the air. Do you think that maybe high ball pitchers are going to have an advantage in that regard because there's going to be uh, the the swing the swing plane is newly mismatched to a high fastball? Yeah, I do, um, and we've talked about it before. And according to the heat maps that I've looked at, there are very few hitters who really hit the ball up in the strike zone well. And you know, above the waist, and since they are calling that pitch, I mean, I'd point to Jason Vargas this year as a guy. You know, he's an extreme fly ball pitcher. Um, he's got a lot of things going for him besides the fact, but he does work up in the strike zone, and he's had fantastic success doing it, despite the fact that he doesn't strike many guys out. And um, I mean, he has got a great defensive outfield. He plays a good home run park. Yeah, those are factors, but. The main factor is that he's pitching up in the zone, and, and it works. It worked for guys like Chris Young and Marco Estrada, although it's not working for Estrada this year. I can boy, isn't it? <laughs> I think it is a factor, and I think you're going to start seeing more of it. Um, I, you know, you see the catcher sometimes with two strikes setting up, you know, going way up and exaggerated. They're not even crouching. Um, but I think that they're aware of it, too. I'll go on with the another thing I, I've been wondering about the home run surge, and that is uh, how are we going to be recalibrating valuations to allow for what Gene called the democratization of home run distribution. We have seen more hitters like Smoke and Morrison moving into that near elite home run production status, while the real elite hitters, your uh, Stantons and, and those kind of guys, are not really gaining because the, the, they're not in a position to gain from that marginal 7 to 10 feet extra uh, distance on on those fly balls it's just uh, the guys who were hitting warning track power are now scraping them over the fence and uh, Giancarlo Stanton is hitting it 10 feet farther into the seats and he's not benefiting as much so uh, again I'm wondering about the valuation effects on that and I and Todd you're the expert on value is there going to be any kind of adjustment made for the fact that so many more home runs are being hit or does that just get factored in by the formula itself 
I think the formula factors it in. There's always some game theory. You know, how do you balance the homers and the steals and the batting average, that sort of thing. So I think that's. It, I think it, it changed. It, this is what you know. I, you know, to me, this is what makes our game fun. I mean, we all can get the values in a vacuum. It's what you do with them that's really important. So I think that's the sort of thing. Is how am I going to balance my team? You know, every you know, everybody has more homers. So what? But are these homers coming with a lower average? Do I need to have a, a batting average foundation in there? Are they not? Do I want to forget average? So to me, you know, the, the, the value takes care of itself. Everything's relative. But it's, it's, it's how you construct your roster with the players doing what they're doing. I, I've, see, you know, I've seen people want to change rules because of the, what's happening here. No, no, no. Don't change the rules. Change, change, you know, figure out a different way to draft. Get out, you know, it's, it's, that's what, that's what makes this fun is, is the, is the draft is it, not, not figuring out how much the guy's worth. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I mean, on my Tower Wars team this year, I made a point to draft power, um, which I always do since the home run is a four category event. Um, and I, and it worked, but relatively speaking, it's not working at all. Because although most of the guys are hitting home runs, so is everybody else. So it, there was really no benefit to doing it. Um, I think the, the thing to do is you got to pick out, as always, the guys who are going to spurt. You know, the guys who are going to go from 10 home runs to 25, which is a damn hard thing to do. Gene, I know you're also uh, wondering about the uh, what you call a story struggling to be born, uh, and that is the rise of the multi-inning reliever, which again might be a response to all the home runs. You want to bring in power arms earlier and longer. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I don't get it. I, I, I mean, it worked for the Indians in the World Series. It's working fantastically for the Astros with Davinsky. Um other teams are taking just little baby steps. The Reds are doing it a little bit with Lorenzen and Iglesias. Um, there's probably another couple of teams that are doing it in a little, but they're not doing it the way they should be doing it. I mean, the way they've take, taken the starting pitching now is they're saying, "Okay, I want you to go through the batting order twice, and then as soon as you get into trouble going through the third time, we take you out," which doesn't make sense to me either. But if they're going to do that, why don't they do the same thing with the relievers, except you go through the batting order once, and then we go to the next guy. Um, you know, even the great lefty specialists that are in the game today, they all get righties out. Um, they have to get righties out. They wouldn't be in the major leagues. Um, so that's what I think should be happening. But I've been saying this for 15 years, and it's now, you know, we're just creeping towards it slowly, maybe after this year, Maybe after a pennant race where it really works again, everybody will start doing it. But I don't know. Let's move on to some fantasy gaming effects that are completely unrelated to the home run increase. And I'd like to start by saying uh, I think there's going to be some... uh, important gaming effects, and I believe we're already seeing them, in uh, the way that Major League rosters are being constructed and how we're responding in fantasy baseball. As we know, uh, MLB rosters used to be 14 hitters, 11 pitchers, maybe 13-12. Now the ratios have flipped. There's often 12, 13, uh, 12 hitters, 13 pitchers, or even 11-14. And the result has been a huge change in the percentages of hitters and pitchers taken from the draft pool. And then there are follow-on effects from valuation and draft strategy. Uh, I think especially rewarding stars and scrubs. And the whole thing is now compounded by growing injury rates. I checked. You guys know there's only 60 hitters in all of Major League Baseball this year had 500 or more plate appearances in each of the last three seasons. And so are we going to start adding value for health reliability. And I know Mike Trout is the shining example of why you can't do that, but is that right? I wonder, can you do it? Can we all? Can we add a, an actual calculable premium to a guy because he seems to have the gift of not getting hurt? I think we can try. I mean, you know, our colleague Ron Chandler, he wrote about it and, you know, he drafted his, he uses his methods where we, you know, use past health. But again, you know, no one, no one could have, you know, Whoever gave Madison Bumgarner his dirt bike, you know, we, you know, we didn't know that was going to happen. But yeah, I think you're right, Patrick. And you know, I, you're preaching to the converted here because I was the one that pushed the rule several years ago. At this point, I mean, this isn't anything new. Through uh, through Tout Wars, where we took our in the AL and the NL leagues, I don't think Mix does it, where we take our fifth outfielder and we make it what we call a swingman spot, so that you can use and you can use anybody. You can use a hitter or a pitcher there, and it was directly in response to. This, uh, you know, the changing of major league rosters. You go to try to figure out to get a corner infielder, and there's not one there. 
So we're talking about our multiple eligibility guys. You take a utility, you put him at corner, and you can use a 10th pitcher. You can use, you know, NL, you can put Jacob Arms in there. You know, Gene's talking about these relievers. There's a, there's a few, Brad Hand or something. You could, you know, for at least a week until you can find somebody, use a 10th pitcher. It's it's a start. I don't know if you, you want to permanently change rosters. I mean, not permanently, but, uh, you know, change the construction, other, you know, not to have like a swingman type. But I think it's really helped in the AL and L Tout Wars to have that swing position. I'm a little hesitant to change the rules until, I mean, MLB themselves may change that back. You know, the game has evolved in that direction. It may switch off and, and evolve in the other direction, get back to normal. Um, I, I would give it a couple of years before getting, you know, changing the rules. It'll certainly change if they, if the more and more teams start realizing that it's better to have a really good relief pitcher throwing 120 innings than a good one throwing 60 and a bad one throwing 60. So it may be that those pitching rosters will shrink as teams come to realize that they can get more value from batters on the bench, pinch runners, and so forth. Uh, Gene, I know something else you're looking at is framing. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, there was a... The, the effects of framing, um, the difference between the best catcher framers and the worst is already less than half of what it was in 2011. So with teams teaching it, with teams looking for pitch framers, um, we, should see, we should see an improvement, compounded with the fact that the very stat is an insult to the umpires, and they should be getting better. Um, they've already gotten better from 2015 to 2016, I mean, that's there in the stats. Um, to my eyes, I haven't seen the stats this year um, as far as calling ball strikes and calling strikes balls. Um, but they seem, to my eyes, to be getting better at doing it. And I think that might have something to the fact. It, it might be adding something. There are 5% fewer strikes being called overall this year. And that's definitely, that by itself could be explaining the, uh, the home run surge. But then you add in a livelier ball, bang, there you go. Um, so, yeah, the overall effect of framing is going to be less, but the, the but the strike zone implications, um, and it, you know, it may be also, and I don't know, I'm just throwing this out there, is that if they're trying to be more accurate and are being more accurate, maybe that's affecting the elite players more than the other players. You know, the guys who, oh, well, he's Paul Goldschmidt, he's entitled to get that call. Maybe that's not happening so much anymore. And that's partial explanation of the democratization. Todd, uh, what do you think about this whole framing issue? You know, yeah, you know, from uh, <laughs> I've always been bothered. You know, Gene alluded to it with the, you know, it's an insult to the umpires. I've always been bothered because you know the, the, the a ball's a, a ball's a strike or a ball as it crosses the plate, not when it's in the catcher's mitt. And you know, I've I've been at saber type events where they where they show the framers and how subtly they move the glove. But I'm thinking, you know, the umpire is standing over his, you know, how is he seeing that? And I get, you know, and I, you know, also come from a background where I was a scientist. So, I mean, I know the, you know, synapses and neurons and the response time and everything else. So I can understand how, you know, it's such a short time the ball's over the plate. But it's always bothered me, especially in, you, know, you watch the games and they put up a two-dimensional strike zone to represent a th- in, something that's actually in three dimensions. So the ball doesn't go through that rectangle. Well, it's not a rec- it's not a rectangle. You know, it, it, it's it, you know, it's 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 depth. There's depth to it too. So I do think that umpires are are becoming better. And I, we saw a recent piece in Fangraphs how it was looking at guys like Jonathan Lacroix, some of the better framers out there, and they're just showing. You know, Gene was pressing it in this area because he wrote a nice piece coming into the season predicting that the top to bottom spread of the good framers versus the poor framers would get, you know, would, would, would lessen, and, and indeed it has. And part of it is because the, you know, the good framers aren't getting worse necessarily, but the better ones are coming up. So on an, on an average basis, they don't have quite as much of, a, of an effect anymore. But um, I do think, you know, I think that the, uh, the other thing is, you know, feeding into all this, and I have to, I haven't crunched the data yet, but, um, you, know, I'll, you know, I'll mention, they talk on the Red Sox broadcasts that there's more curveballs than ever, and by their eye, What's happening? The umpires were not hanging with the curveball long enough, but now that major leagues are throwing curves more and more, he believe they believe that the umpires are getting better at calling the curveball. Right now, it's just narrative. I mean, well, you know, it's announcer speak, uh, but we see. But I mean, at least at least there's some there's a it's plausible anyway. Yeah, I think that's true. Todd, anything else going on in the major league baseball other than the home run surge? You think is important to note? 
Yeah, it's weird. And again, you know, I'm a numbers guy, but this is a lot of narrative. And uh, it's just beginning of this season. And Joe Madden came out and said, uh, you know, said 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 as much. Was the um, he was going to go easy on his pitchers? They had a long year the year before. He wasn't going to have them going deep into games coming going on. And to me, it's just and as good as Madden is as far as playing head games, I just kind of said at that point, is this a mistake? You can't. You know, you talk about basketball. You can flip the switch. I don't think you can flip the switch in baseball. And I think the Cubs realized, found out how hard this game is and that, you know, we, we were really invested in their hitters and their pitchers. And, they're just, you know, it's I think part of it's meant, you know, the, the whole attitude coming in. And it's the other thing it's doing is the National League now, you know, there's a lot of teams out there that either won't trade away their players or, you know, Milwaukee, a buyer at the deadline. So not only are a lot of our teams being... You know, in, you know, influenced by you know anybody who's John Lester, forget about it. You know, Jerry, Jake Arrieta, but I think this whole the whole trade deadline is is going to uh, different dynamic just because of the I call it the Cubs malaise. I just uh, you know I don't know. I just uh, I think I think the great tacticianer Madden made a mistake this season coming into the year. Yeah, you know I I'm going to add to that because I think that's what they were doing with Schwarber, where they're going to bat him lead off against righties and lefties, and I figured that they were thinking well, we're going to give this guy as many reps as we can and hope it pays off for us down the road, which it may yet. But in the meantime, even if he struggles, we're so good that we're going to, you know, it's not going to matter to us. And I think that they definitely paid a price for that so far. Whether it turns out that way at the end, it remains to be seen. But I think that that goes right in with what Todd is saying. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey and Todd Zola at a all-star break roundtable about uh, fantasy baseball and real baseball. And when we come back, we'll talk about our MVP, Cy Young winners, and the bust of the first half. Stay with us, Baseball HQ Radio. He's sitting on 714. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate, and listen to this crowd. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with the Baseball HQ Radio first half all-Star break round table Gene McCaffrey and Todd Zola on hand and uh, guys let's go through our fantasy MVPs Cy Youngs and busts uh, let's start with the first half American League MVP uh, Gene who's your guy I'm gonna go with George Springer because he looked like a guy who was you know a good player uh, but had not developed at all and all of a sudden boom but there's a rational explanation for it is uh, his in zone contact has gone from 70 to 85 percent since his rookie year um, I think he's clearly for real, even though he doesn't steal bases anymore. He's serious power, and I think the average is going to be at least respectable. Um, he may score 140 runs this year. And if he does, holy cow. Uh, Todd, who's your guy? <laughs> yeah, we talk about this every year we, when we've done this in the past. Is it, a, you know, is it the guy that has, has you know, got the most value over the first half? Is it a increase over expected? I know, I'm, you know, I, know, I don't like to do things uniformly, so I try to do something in the middle. And we've talked about him, and uh, and it's Jose Ramirez for me. And we've even alluded to the reason why. Part of it is, you know, you know, I'm like the old MV. I mentioned basketball before, right? So I, uh, I'm an old Larry Bird fan, and he used to make the team around him so much better. And what Ramirez does for your lineup, being able to jump between second and third, and just the um, of all the st- of all his numbers, he's the five category guy. The man, the batting average that he gives you, that batting average cushion, so many at bats and doesn't walk a ton, so there's so many plate, you know, so many at bats to to anchor the batting average. It just helps you go out and get that low, you know, let you get Malik Smith. I mean, it go let you get whatever you need to to to, to fill the category juice. So um, you know, Aaron Judge might be have may have returned the most value so far, and he'd be a good answer. Uh, but for me, I just I want to give a, a nod to Ramirez. Who, Patrick? I knew you were on him in the. You know, we should mention you were you were on him coming into the season. So kudos for that. Yeah, 
Yeah, you know, as a matter of fact, last year I we have this feature at BaseballHQ.com called the uh, Facts and Flukes Spotlight, and it's a chance for analysts to go in and really dig into the the heat maps and the and the uh, in zone out of zone contact rates and all this deeper analysis that's available. And they give us fifteen hundred words or two two thousand words. And one of the guys I got last year was Jose Ramirez. And the more I researched him, uh, the more I thought, wow, this guy really is for real. Now I have to say that he's a tremendous hitter. He hits a lot of line drives. He makes a ton of hard contact. And I think all of his performance so far has been sustainable. I'm a little concerned about the stolen bases in the longer run. His uh, his rate is already off a little this year. And as he, he's a pretty stocky guy. And I wonder if uh, sooner or later he's going to sort of metamorphose into something that's more of a pure hitter type guy, a Tony Gwynn type guy with uh, with more power but um, I'm wondering about the stolen bases uh, on my on my half I'm going to say Aaron Judge is the MVP I think that's pretty obvious so I'm going to take a different kind of guy uh, kind of like Ramirez because he's one of the few shining lights on my tow team but in a world without Aaron Judge I think Elvis Andrus would be, be a pretty high profit guy and he's only a few bucks behind Judge anyways and he's outdoing him in stolen bases and stolen bases as we all know are getting harder to find I give him a few bonus points for resilience he's one of those reliable 500-600 plate appearance guys every year and he plays a position that's tougher to fill usually at shortstop so uh, I'll take Elvis Andrews uh, let's move on to the National League and start with Todd who's your MVP from the senior circuit yeah, again, trying to figure figuring out some a narrative why I don't want to go with just the best player. I'm going with Ryan Zimmerman, and you know, you know, anybody who picked up Ryan Zimmerman, even in an NL only, you were not targeting Ryan Zimmerman. And you know what? There's going to be guys that say, you know, Gene and I, we, you know, we play NFBC, and there's someone out there that's going to hear this and say, no, 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 I was on him. I call, I call BS. You weren't on Ryan Zimmerman. You, you, you happened into him. You know what? By doing so, though, you now have an excess at either corner or in power, and again, the batting average. So, sort of the the intangible that he gives, and it's really hard to build up an excess in the, in today's day and age to trade from. Obviously, you can't trade in the NFBC, but if you're in a league where you can trade, it's so hard to build up that excess, that strength, to make a deal to help another area of your team. So that's what Zimmerman's doing for you. So not only is he you know pr- producing the numbers on the on the field, I think he's got an ancillary effect on your whole team. If I was a Zimmerman owner, I'd be really thinking about trading him given his injury history. Yeah, or you know, and if you you know, or you trade, you take the chance that he doesn't get hurt, and you trade away that you're you know a corner or your regular first or third baseman or whatever. But I agree. But at this point, though, that's built in. I don't think anybody's going to give you. It's it's it, depending on where you are in the on the, in the standings, etc. Everybody knows about the injury history, so you're going to get back. What are you going to get back? So it depends on what you need. It's a balance. Yeah, Scott Pianowski always says it's so easy to say buy low, sell high, but it's much harder to do it in real life. And uh, by the way, I I did have Zimmerman in a slow draft league in the twenty eighth round. Um, no, I did not expect him to do it. In fact, <laughs> I remember thinking at the time um, I couldn't make up my mind between Zimmerman and Matt Adams, um, and I and I went with Zimmerman and uh, Matt Adams done pretty well too. Absolutely. You mentioned, should we go with value or should we go with profit? I'm just going to go with Paul Goldschmidt because I think he's having a great year. Cody Bellinger, well, reserve round pick or maybe even a free agent, uh, doing so well, probably or possibly giving a, a bigger profit. But Travis Shaw, too, I wonder how much the Red Sox wish they'd hung on to him. But Paul Goldschmidt is just raking all the way across the board. He's on pace for 35 homers, 25 stolen bases. And he's had 700 plate appearances each of the last three seasons, well on his way to repeating that. I think Paul Goldschmidt, you could make a pretty decent argument, might be the most valuable player in all of fantasy baseball if Mike Trout doesn't come back 100% and stay 100%. Yeah, Goldschmidt's my guy too. And uh, by base running runs, he's uh, second in baseball to, to Billy Hamilton. And that uh, it's definitely a factor. And, you know, let's not forget, you know, you know, everybody talks about the first round return on value, and it doesn't. You got to get that value. I mean, he's got that. He's a foundation player, the foundation player, with the possible exception of Trout, as you say. Yeah, I get a kick out of uh, this this year. He went down to seventh, eighth, and ninth in a lot of drafts, and people, ah, darn it. I guess I'll take Paul Goldschmidt. Yeah, I guess you're pretty happy. Yeah. Right. 
Well, there was some concern before the season that his stolen bases were going to fall off, and instead he comes out just roaring. And uh, he's playing for a good team, and that that always maintains everybody's interest as well. Uh, let's move on to our first half Cy Youngs, starting in the American League. And I'll go first. And my vote, I was going to go for Chris Sale. But I publicly said before the season on a Sirius XM broadcast that he was not going to have a good year. So I don't want to. I don't want to be so flagrantly admissive of my colossal blunder. And I have no beef with anyone who picks Chris Sale, as I suspect both of you might. But uh, Craig Kimbrell has been nearly as valuable as Sale on a uh, dollar valuation basis. Twenty-three saves, of course, which is a great help in the in a category. But how about the insane decimals he's ringing up in 37 and, a, and change innings, an ERA of 119? How about a whip of 0.5? We've talked about this before, guys. A reliever who provides that kind of decimal support really offsets a, a poorer starter on the balance, and that's hugely valuable, I think. I, th- I bet Kimbrell went for 20 bucks or so in most American League auctions, so he might even be more profitable in sale for some owners. Gene, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly nothing wrong with with taking them. And, and what I usually do with closers is I, you know, I have the, an elite group, and I, in a draft, I try to take the last guy. Um, doesn't always work out that way, but you know, that's a good way to do it. And if you Kimbrel happens to be that guy for you, you are really sitting pretty. I don't know if anybody could have predicted it, though. What do you think, Todd? Well, I don't think they could have predicted. I, you know, I think you were hoping that he walked fewer hitters and just got the saves. But man, you know, watching this guy work now, you know, we, we you know, we, we're amazed when the guy follows the ball off him. Now, it's just, it's just the, the two wipeout pitches that he have. It's just, it's just, it's a joy to watch. It's just sick. But you know, as, as you alluded to, Patrick, you know, by the numbers, Sale is worth three points in the ratios. Uh, comparing him to a, an average closer. Now, I'm not comparing him to a starter, but comparing Sale to an average closer, he's th- those th- those decimals are worth two or three points in a mixed league, which, as you suggest, is just simply huge. And you know, in, as far as you know, the the save pace, he's actually a closer that if the, if the Red Sox play a little better in the second half, we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago. Patrick is the uh, uh, saves are proportional to team wins. And the percentage of team wins that get a save has to do with the team ERA. And the Red Sox have a low ERA, which kind of puts Kimberl in that class of closers that could save, you know, if, if the league average 53% of wins are saved, he could be up, he could be above that. So he's a guy that, I'm not going to call it 50 saves, but he's, you know, he he's not going to, his pace will not slow, at least on paper it won't anyway. You never know. But, you know, if you're trying to project it, yeah, uh, he he continued to get all those saves. So Kimbrel gets your vote for Cy. Actually, no, I'm going to go Chris. Uh, I'm going to go Chris Sale. Uh, it's just the uh, it, it's the um, you know it's always great to get that uh, sleeper pitcher that comes up and 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 helps your team. You know, last year Tanner Roark and you know Gene alluded to Vargas this year, but it doesn't do you any good, especially this year, if you don't have that anchor. And sale wasn't cheap, but he's still giving you a, a pretty decent return on investment. So to me, in, in, in the AL, if if you're if you got Chris Sale, you're pitching. You're probably doing a really bad job if your pitching's not doing well, because the, the advantage he gives you is just sick. A lot of strikeouts too, which which helps. Uh, he's he comes into the break. I think his WHIP is well under 1.0. His ERA is well under three. So certainly Chris Sale is getting the job done. Uh, boy, it's no wonder Boston's doing well and. With regard to that, uh, what kind of teams generate more saves and stuff, a third thing, we always talk about uh, good teams get more wins but have wider wins, bad teams have fewer wins to save, but their margins of victory are narrower. Do you think that there's been any effect by the way that the Red Sox are winning the games? They're not pounding out a ton of runs with home runs. They're kind of scratching. They're, they're manufacturing runs and so forth. Does that sort of lead to the kind of narrower win margins that help a guy like Kimbrel pick up saves, Todd? Well, when I did the, when I did the correlation, I correlated, and again, it's not total saves. It's, it's percentage of wins that get a save. And I, I did it against ERA. I did it against run scored. And I did it against run differential. And the biggest correlation was ERA. So, uh, you know, I, so I think it does, I think even less, you know, I think that helps, that feeds into it in that their run differential isn't huge. I mean, this, that feeds into why Kenley Jansen, for instance, who's where, you know, decimals are every bit as good as Kimbrels and strikeouts, but the Dodgers, you know, are what fifth in run scored. I don't they have one of the, 
Uh, saw it last night uh, on the on the late game on the ESPN game that they've got one of the highest run differentials coming into the break, and you know the other teams are like in the twenties and thirties and forties. It, it, we're not really talking about the Dodgers offense like we maybe should be, and um, it's just it's it's infecting Jansen's saves, and then and maybe he'll get a few more in the second half, but it's just the way the Dodgers play, and, and their ERA is low, so he should. But man, they're scoring so many runs that I think you, you are getting some you know, four- and five-run games that they just don't need them. There's a ton of randomness in, in saves, but generally speaking, if you have a good team in a pitcher's park with perhaps a suspect offense, um, that's the model that you're looking for. Um, you know, worth elevating their closer as far as you can. Um, but there's a lot of randomness. But generally speaking, if you, you know, the guys in Seattle – the guys in Dodger Stadium, the guys in San Francisco, if they're, you know, if the team is okay, then they get a they get a little bump, which would not apply to Kimball, of course. So we'll give Chris Sale the nod on consensus for the first half Cy Young in the American League. Let's go over to the National. I suspect we may have consensus here as well. Gene, who's your first half Cy Young winner for the National? Well, I mean, I think it's got to be Scherzer, although Kershaw is right there, um, and then. For value, um, Robbie Ray is a guy who was fully touted, and for once, he fully delivered. Yeah, I'll split the value and I'll split the performance and go with Zach Greinke, who you know the the, the you know rumors of his demise were a little a little bit exaggerated there, and it's 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 not just the ratios. And listen, he's not he's like 50 or 60 strikeouts behind Sale and Scherzer, but he's still in the top 10 in K's. So and he's giving you the innings too. So for me, kind of splitting the difference between trying to figure out if I want to go with value or if I want to go with just the best stats, and plus it's just a way to point out that you know, and and the uh, the other you know the 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 word now is that the humidor won't be coming into into Chase Field at, into next season, so you can uh, continue to uh, he's he's doing this without the humidor is my point, and um, helps Goldschmidt maybe hurts Grinky and Robbie Ray, but this guy's just having a fantastic year. I'm going to go with Max Scherzer as well, although I really do like Granke, and I like Alex Wood as well on a value basis. But mm-hmm. uh, Max Scherzer got some pretty high bids, I'm sure, but they were tempered a little bit, if I remember correctly. I don't play National League, so I'm going by what I remember from stories about drafts. He had some health concerns coming into this year, and that kind of pushed him down into the second round in a lot of drafts, down into the high 20s, low 30s. But by our valuations at BaseballHQ.com, and Todd, correct me if you think this is way out of line, Scherzer's not just the most valuable pitcher in the National League. He's the most valuable player in the National League. We have him nearly at $50 in value, five bucks ahead of Clayton Kershaw in second place. And he's got 173 strikeouts and 18 starts, which is really getting the job done. I think owners with Max Scherzer are pretty happy about that fact, and they're in contention in a lot of leagues. Yeah, well, depending, you know, you can. I think Goldschmidt and Scherzer, they're they're so close. It's not worth, uh, it's not worth you know quibbling over. You know, the thing with Scherzer, recall, was the knuckle, and that it wasn't. It was health, obviously, but it was he was changing his grip to to not hurt his knuckle anymore. Uh, I think I, I think it's safe to say at this point that the uh, the grip change has not has not hurt him. No, and I don't think people were really <laughs> worried about it either. In, in, no, in the Vegas no. NFBC leagues, he was a first rounder. Right. Okay, guys, we'll go with Max Scherzer as the consensus pick. Honorable mention goes to Zach Greinke. Uh, let's f- close out this part of the show with the bust of the first half, and I'll go first. I'm going to go with a guy who's been on some uh, championship teams for me, but so far this year has been a real disappointment to his owners. Miguel Cabrera of the Tigers was going in the low first, high second rounds of a lot of drafts. His average draft position was around 16, and he was still fetching b- bids in the $30 range. He's $11 so far this year. And uh, I suspect he's disappointing his owners not so much just with that, but 267 for a batting average when you're expecting 330. You might think that your foundation is Cabrera and now your foundation is crumbling. Uh, I guess there's some hope for the rest of the season, guys. He's still scorching the ball. His hard contact index is higher than the last few years. He's hitting more line drives. But he's 34 years old now, and I'm really wondering about his legs and feet. I watch him on the field out there. He moves around like he has bunions the size of snooker balls. You guys remember Sanford and Son, the way Red Fox used to wobble around? Miguel Cabrera is doing a pretty decent impression of that. I'm worried about Miguel Cabrera, and he's my bust of the first half. Todd? Yeah, you say that over the week. You know, he had made that great over-the-shoulder catch in a 
So I hopefully maybe maybe the feet are getting better for for Cabrera. But uh, I'm going to go Manny Machado. And um, the bat the counting stats are there. The batting average is terrible. But um, with some interesting notes on, on on Twitter, and I think if we watched the guy, you, you you sort of felt this. But you know the number that I just blew my mind. He's got at the time that this Twitter uh, Ryan Spader's Twitter account came out. He had 41 outs on batted balls of 100 miles per hour, and I, you know, anytime I hear like that, I want to know, you know, what's the ratio, you know, what does that compare to the norm? I, th- I don't think I need to know. I, I think I, need, I think it's safe to say it's cliche, but 41 outs on batted balls of 100 miles an hour. I think the guy got a little bit unlucky over the first half. Or well positioned, uh, Gene. What do you think? <laughs> well, I agree with both of those, um, but I'll throw out Jonathan VR because he's really been terrible. Uh, consensus second rounder. Um, in his case, I don't think he's going to uh, turn it around. Um, he's got pressure from Eric Sogard's fantastic 438 on base percentage. The team is contending. They can't afford to let him go. They might trade him. I think that's a possibility. But I don't think he's going to be um, return anywhere near the second round value that he um, that he was done for. The thing about Cabrera I wanted to add was that um, I would watch him right after the break. Because maybe these four days off will do him good. I mean, he's got all that stuff going for him, and I think that we should also remember that he's a Hall of Famer, and Hall of Famers do not lose it at age 34. So, um, you know, I've got him on a couple of teams, and maybe it's wishful thinking, but um, I would expect him to turn it around and maybe do some blistering in the second half. Gene, when you mentioned uh, Jonathan VR and you said Eric Sogard is applying strong pressure to bench VR. And I thought to myself, boy, if Eric Sogard is pressuring you, it means you're not in a good place. I remember Eric Sogard, and he's certainly uh, certainly not the kind of guy you'd expect to be pressuring a, a potential all-star like Jonathan VR. Okay, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David, Gene McCaffrey, and Todd Zolo. We'll take another break here, and then when we come back, we'll look ahead to the rest of the season and uh, try to figure out who you might want to look at for your team. It's Baseball HQ Radio. Stay with us. One and one to Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is gone, and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the Major League. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with a Baseball HQ Radio roundtable discussion for the All-Star break with Todd Zola and Gene McCaffrey. And guys, let's go ahead and look at the rest of the season and try to pick out some studs and duds. Uh, Todd, amongst hitters, who's a stud for you for the second half? He's been a stud the first half, but maybe it's, I think he's going to continue to continue on. And that's Miguel Sano. And the first part of this is I, I think what he's doing is real. I don't think that's a stretch. We all, you all know how hard he hits the ball. If he can keep the strikeouts down, but we've we've you know, we've been talking about home runs earlier, and home runs are up, runs are up, but they're not up proportionately. What's happening is there's just a greater percentage of runs being scored via the home run, and therefore, and we were talking also about strategically how do you draft a team. One of the things I'm going to, I mean, I'm you know, I'm not drafting home runs. I want to draft uh, home runs on a good hitting team or a high scoring team, just because you're going to get more percentage-wise, runs in RBIs than you are. This is always the case, but it's even more so the case this year. And I don't see the Twins. The Twins are surprised. I don't see them getting worse over the second half. Uh, Buxton might get better. Uh, Brian Dozier, I'm not a first-half, second-half guy, but, you know, he did have that monster second half, and I just think in general he's going to get better. So, I mean, Sano, you mentioned Springer scoring 140. Sano can knock in 140 and score over 100. So I just I love watching this guy play. I think it also says something as far as the type of player that he is. He was just a butcher at third base last year. And I'm not saying he's Brooks Robinson, but he's passable now. And just the ability to do that, I think he, he, and I think eventually he'll, you know, I don't think he'll strike out, you know, he won't become, you mentioned Tony Gwynn, but I think, you know, even if he knocks 5% of those strikeouts down, What's that? Another you know four, five, or six homers on top of his total. So I'm just basically saying you know the guy's coachable, and I, I just I think he's uh, got him in the eighth round of a draft this year, and I don't think that'll ever happen again. My guy's going to be a, another bit of wishful thinking as uh, 
As Gene alluded to about Miguel Cabrera, I have Tim Anderson on my Tout American League team, and he's been a disappointment this year, and I'm going to speculate on him. Uh, he had some inflated expectations coming in, but here's the thing. He has as many home runs this year as last year in 100 fewer at-bats. He has as many RBIs this year as last year in those same 100 fewer. He's down five stolen bases from last year, but he could make that up, I think, in the second half, especially if the White Sox get out of the race as we're all expecting. They might start trading. Run producer Todd Frazier could be gone. Melky Cabrera could be gone. They'll have to do something to move runners around. Maybe they let him run a bit. There's also an intriguing bit of news slash noise here. I'm curious what you guys think. On June 26, Tim Anderson started wearing glasses when he was playing the game, including at the plate. In the 11 games since, he had three home runs to have to hope that he gets uh, some uh, benefit in strikeouts because he's striking out a lot and he has yet to take a base on ball since he got the new peepers. So uh, I don't know. I like Tim Anderson as a speculative play. Uh, Gene, what do you think? Right. Well, I like Nick Castellanos. I've liked him before, but I just love how hard he hits the ball. Um, He really doesn't have the great results to to show for it yet, but anybody who hits the ball that hard that often, uh, it's got to happen sooner or later, so I'm going to stick to my guns on him, even though I don't own him anywhere. And let's move on to the rest of the season, stud pitcher. I had a lot of trouble with this category, guys, more than anything else that we've talked about. I looked at Annabelle Sanchez for the last three weeks. He's been really good, and I happened to watch his last start. And the guys in uh, in the radio booth and in the TV booth, because I left partway through to go drive and I listened on XM, and they were really enthusiastic about how well Annabelle Sanchez has come around all of a sudden. So, you know, if you're looking for an out-of-the-box guy, keep him in mind. Also, don't be sleeping on Cam Bedrosian. I know he's got a lot of injury trouble. He makes Mark Pryor look like Mark Burley. But in the Angels' bullpen, there seems to be a lot of opportunity. And listen to these skills. His ERA, 180. His whips, 093. 12 strikeouts per nine. 1.8 walks per nine. 6.7 strikeouts per walk. I know gadding around looking for the few saves the Angels might offer isn't all that useful, so my pick is going to be Trevor Bauer of Cleveland. He's been terrible, 524-141, but his expected ERA is two runs lower. He's got a 10 strikeouts per nine dominance rate. He's 3.0 strikeouts per walk, nearly 50% ground balls. Everything about this guy says he should be a lot better than he is, and he's just been really unlucky. Cleveland's a strong team. They've got a tremendous bullpen and a manager who seems to know how to use it. If the Bauer owner in your league is fed up, make an offer. Gene. I'm going to go with Jimmy Nelson, a guy who I expected nothing from. Uh, but he's really improved against left-handed batters. Um, he's doing all the things that uh, that the emergent ace that the Brewers needed. Um, I think he's for real. Um, and I think he's going to continue for the second half. Todd. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is low, picking low-hanging fruit here. But I've just been so impressed with Luis Severino. And I know the AL East will hurt him a little bit, and the AL in general. But man, I and again, I'm not a scout, but this guy's demeanor and composure, I just are off the charts. You know, when when a guy makes an error behind him, he doesn't get all mad. He just goes out and strikes the next guy out. So I think the Yankees have himself a 24 year old ace, and I just it's uh it's, he's 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 such a he's well 23, but you know, but uh he's just so fun to watch, and and I don't I think what he's doing is real. The uh will be able to manage the home runs even in that park and uh. You know, as I uh, alluded to the Red Sox a couple times, get to see this guy pitch a, a bit, and, uh, you know, I throw it aside. The rivalry aside, I just like watching this guy pitch. So our stud pitchers, Trevor Bauer, Jimmy Nelson, and Luis Severino, let's go to the duds. Uh, Gene, let's start with a hitter. Who's your dud hitter for the rest of the season? You want no part of this guy. Well, I got two of them, um, Victor Martinez and Gregory Polanco. Um, they're both having trouble hitting the fastball, which means they're going to see plenty more of them. I think uh, Victor's on his last legs. Um, maybe see a little spurt, but I don't think he's going to, you know, be anything special. Uh, Polanco, on the other hand, I don't like what I see at all of him. I, he's he's not hustling. I don't know. Maybe there's an injury, but I don't like it when guys aren't hustling and when they're not producing. Um, I'm staying. I'm staying away from him. Todd Zola, who's your dud hitter for the second half? Yeah, actually, Patrick, you may be able to help me on this one a little bit. In the, from, uh, but mine, mine's Josh Donaldson. And, you know, just strictly by the numbers, I'm concerned that the strikeouts are down. Uh, strikeouts are way up. I'm sorry, the spike in strikeouts. And I mentioned RBIs for Sano, the team context. I mean, they've been moving around a little bit in the batting order. To me, it doesn't matter where he's going to hit. The team's not scoring as many runs. And so his runs in RBI production are just going to be down from what we expect. And, uh, 
you know, I don't, I'm hearing, you know, he wants to get out of town, this, that, the other thing. I hate to see any team is mailing it in because I just, I don't like to go down that road. But uh, Toronto's defense has been terrible lately. I don't know what's going on there. So I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about a Josh Donaldson bounce back in the second half. I don't think uh, that Donaldson should be counted on for any kind of bounce back as well. And uh, I don't know whether it's a bit of uh, malaise caused by the Jays' poor performance. He's a very um, fiery guy in regards to how the team is playing, and maybe he's just getting disappointed. Also, he's had some injuries, and he's been coming back too soon from a lot of them and struggling in his uh, games back. Uh, I agree, Josh Donaldson. If you can get him for a song, I think it's worth a gamble, but I wouldn't I wouldn't acquire him expecting a second half like he had last year. My pick is going to be Gene Segura of Seattle. I see a lot of those hitters in Seattle overperforming. Ben Gamble's leading the league in batting average or is close, but I can't fathom Gene Segura. On the face of it, he's a $23 player. Six homers, he's batting three fifty-five. He's got nine bags and 41 runs, but the skills are just not there, you guys. Uh, his hit rate's at 400 right now. Babip, uh, a 400, 40% hit rate. He's usually around 30. He was 35 last year. 40% seems uh, a lot, especially for a guy who doesn't hit the ball particularly hard. He doesn't hit a lot of line drives. 50% ground ball rate. He's fast. He slaps the ball on the ground. I get it. That usually can inflate the BABIP a little bit. But 355 for a batting average? His expected batting average is 70 points below that, and I'll take that under. Nine stolen bases, okay. But uh, if he can't walk, doesn't hit, he's going to have trouble getting aboard. And he's been caught stealing seven times. That kind of serial rally killing makes me wonder when Segura starts seeing more red lights than a Hamburg sailor in the Reaper Bond. Well, this is our first serious disagreement. Because I think he's for real. Um, I mean, he's not a three fifty five hitter, okay. Uh, but last year, you know, this is a guy who had serious, really serious personal issues, death. You know, I mean, that's hard to deal with, and he bounced back from it strong. I just give you his last last year. His road numbers, his road slash was three twelve, three seventy five, four sixty eight. That's what I think he is. Um, so yeah, I don't think he's going to hit three fifty five, but I think at the end of the season he's going to be at three twenty. And he's going to steal bases and hit for moderate power in a good lineup. So I'm drawing the line there, Patrick. And I'm happy to step over the line and say I'll take the under on the batting average. I'll take the under on the stolen bases as well. Uh, let's go ahead and say uh, about our dud pitchers. Todd, let's start with you. Uh, who's your dud pitcher for the second half? You know, this would have been a lot better if we recorded this 24 hours earlier. But we did do our prep. on. I did my prep on Saturday night. Uh, John Lester scares me, and I know, you know, although yesterday's outing or, or Sunday's outing, you have some unearned runs in there too, but I'm scared, and he's, he's an anchor in a couple of my teams, and maybe that was a mistake, I don't know. We, he's not getting out of trouble, he's not as sharp, and I mentioned the whole Cubs malaise earlier, so I, uh, to me, I don't, I don't see Lester coming back and having a, you know, a, you know, a 3.1, 1.05 whip. Uh, over the you know over the the pseudo second half of the All Star break, I'm a I'm a bit concerned about Lester. My dud pitcher for the second half, guys, is Irvin Santana of the Twins. The Twins are a great story this year. Santana is a great chapter in that story. But I just can't buy a sub-3 ERA. His uh, expected ERA is a run and a half higher. I don't uh, like his strikeout rate is under 7. His walks per 9 is over 3. These are not ace-level skills. I did a filter on uh, your current year-to-date, and these are the kind of skills we get with Nick Martinez, Jordan Zimmerman, guys like that, Alec Asher of Baltimore. I don't think you'd roster them as aces, would you? Gene, what do you think? Oh, I agree with that. I agree with both of those. Um, and I'm going to add in Gio Gonzalez because I don't see anything different from him, except that his bat up is 259. Um, and especially with Trey Turner out at shortstop, I, I think that's going to hurt him too. Um, so I think Gio Gonzalez is headed for a few bombings. All right, boys, that's a wrap. I really do appreciate you taking the time this morning to talk with us. We'll have uh, an interesting second half coming up. Wish we had more time to talk about more guys because I like listening to you guys talk about baseball. Gene, uh, where can listeners stay in touch with uh, Gene McCaffrey? Well, I mean, I'm posting a little bit on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, I still have wiseguybaseball.com going, although I'm not doing anything. But what I am doing is I am going to be fully engaged on Wise Guy Baseball 2018. So if your readers would be kind enough to keep their eyes open for that, I, I would appreciate it. Todd Zola, where can people stay up with you? Uh, well, my uh, my site, Masters Ball, you can find me there on the on the boards there. And 
Twitter at Todd Zola. Uh, all you know, eight letters short, nice and easy, no real, you know, just just Todd Zola. And uh, you know, I do some work for ESPN and RotoWire. And you mentioned you know hearing us talk, and I think the uh, you know we, we're getting close to the time where registration. If you if you guys want to hear us, the three of us talk baseball and talk with us. You know, head out to know uh, Arizona in the the first pitch forums in early November, and uh, you can actually, you know, you look at me and say, "Man, you sound a lot taller on the radio." <laughs> All right, guys, uh, thanks very much for helping us out. As I said, Gene, it's always a pleasure. Yes, it's always a real pleasure, and especially to add Todd this time too. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate being included in such august company. And Todd, uh, thanks as always, uh, joining us in July company and August company. I'll talk with you again this Friday, actually. All right, looking forward to it. Gene McCaffrey is the wise guy of fantasy baseball. Todd Zola writes regularly for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and they're both good friends of this podcast and its host. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for July the 11th. It's our Tuesday special edition mid-season roundtable. Thanks very much for downloading and listening to show number 27 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our very special guests on the Roundtable panel, both familiar voices for HQ Radio listeners. From Wise Guy Baseball, Gene McCaffrey added his knowledge and insight. And for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, Todd Zola did the same. We're all very fortunate that these two experts took the time as we battled through some behind-the-scenes technical glitches, and they really brought the goods through the entire show. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio and very much the third wheel on today's Roundtable panel. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It all helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll return to the regular schedule on Friday when our feature guest expert will be a return visit from Todd Zola on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.